Oh, busy old day on RTE Radio 1 and plenty to catch up with. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Well, you know, I, I joked to him the, the big commitment he should make in Mayo is to help Mayo finally win the Sam McGuire <laughs> Cup. I think that would be... I think that would be more of a crowd pleaser. Because I naively believed that when the sentence was over, my punishment was over. But actually, that is when the punishment, when I got out, that is when the real punishment started. I grew up in the most Catholic of houses. There was rosaries. We used to be the Scott family choir on a Saturday night at Mass. And then again on Sunday, like, I did readings. I would have been an altar girl if I thought I'd get away with it. And when I was a teenager then, I just kind of thought, oh, I, you know, I had my own sort of... Epiphany. And we'll start with Morning Ireland and Audrey Carvel was looking forward to President Joe Biden arriving in Belfast to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. If you hadn't heard, let me tell you that the US President Joe Biden will arrive in Ireland tonight. His plane Air Force One will land in Belfast and tomorrow he will give a keynote speech at Ulster University in the city centre. Then it's off to Dublin, Louth and Mayo where he will end his four-day trip. Along with him will be Democratic Congressman Brendan Boyle whose ancestry is from Donegal. He's on the line this morning. Good morning to you. You're welcome. Yes, wonderful to be back with you. What does Joe Biden's determination to be in Ireland to mark 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement tell us about the priority that he puts on doing what he can to maintain the solidity of the peace here? Well, I I happen to know that it is very important to him personally. Um, It is in many ways celebrating a commitment that began at least 25 years ago, really going back to when Uh, President Clinton first appointed a special envoy to kickstart the peace talks in the early 90s. Uh, Really, since then, presidents of both parties have committed themselves to playing an active role in uh, keeping the peace going uh, in Northern Ireland. But for this president in particular, and I know this because he has said it to me personally many times, just how much he he cares very deeply uh, about his Irish and Irish-American heritage. It's unclear if he's going to meet the individual politicians north of the border in Belfast uh, tomorrow. Uh, Do you think he should? Should he use the might of his office to meet in particular with the DUP who are still refusing to go into government at Stormont despite the election last year? Well, my understanding is he just met with them um, literally only a few weeks ago. All of them uh, were in the White House. We were together in the East Room on St. Patrick's Day. Um, they were there, and I believe he met with uh, each of the leaders uh, after uh, that event. You know, the one challenge anytime a president of the United States travels to any country, there are enormous demands uh, and requests coming from everywhere. I know myself, I fielded a number of requests from relatives to friends to acquaintances trying to uh, to get on the president's calendar. So you take that and you magnify it times a million uh, if you're president. So I, I, I do not envy the um, the important task that the scheduler makers have over at the White House. Is it a problem, do you think, though, that for many in the DUP, they don't see the Democratic Party as honest brokers here? Some of them don't, at least. They hear Joe Biden making jokes about never wearing orange. They think your party has a predetermined outcome. You want a united Ireland. How does does he, how do you use your party, convince them that you can be trusted? 
Well, it is funny uh, reading and listening to a lot of um, this uh, nostalgia about President Clinton 25 years ago. I, I noticed some of the people who today are praising President uh, Clinton's even head in this at the time, 25 years ago, were accusing him of being a, an IRA sympathizer. Um, so I, I do tend uh, to notice um, that whenever an American president gets involved, frankly, whether the president's a Democrat or a Republican, um, there are some allegations in some quarters that an American president has a bias in a certain direction. I, I think the reality is uh, quite obviously otherwise, that this president, as all of his predecessors, have been fairly even-handed and, in the end of the day, attempting to forge and keep the peace. I want to ask you about Joe Biden himself and his plans for the White House. You'll be aware that he told NBC over the weekend that he does plan to run again in 2024. Nothing official yet. Do you think that's a good idea or do you think he should face a challenge for the nomination from within the Democratic Party? Uh, I was one of the first uh, members of Congress to officially endorse Joe Biden's candidacy for the presidency about this time four years ago. Um, I strongly support him running again, uh, not to get overtly um, political here, but um, I, I do believe that Donald Trump represents an existential threat to American democracy. And I thought leading into 2020, Joe Biden was the best candidate to beat him. And I still think that leading into 2024. So I hope he runs. I fully expect he will run. Uh, and I think you'll have a formal announcement uh, probably sometime over the next couple months. OK, so he's not going to make it in mail. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I joke to him, the, the big commitment he should make in Mayo is to help Mayo finally win the Sam McGuire <laughs> Cup. I think that would be I think that would be more of a crowd pleaser. Congressman Brendan Boyle speaking to Audrey Carvel in the morning. Then later, Ryan Tuberty was musing about the visit. Very quickly on the Biden visit, because he's, he's coming in tonight and, and we, we're Biden out of it a little bit. I think with the coverage, it's 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 full on. But what's say I've heard a lot of snarky coverage about it. And what I'll say is, obviously, I'm not going to be snarky about the visit. You know my feelings about presidential visits. I'm, I think they're really good. I think they're really useful. I think they're really important. And there's a sort of slightly, as I say, snarky, bit too cool for school take on it. And I wouldn't be in that camp. I'd be in the camp that says when the most powerful person, quote unquote, on the planet comes to a tiny island for four days, that's got to be good for us politically, economically, in a tourist sense to sell the country. All eyes on Mayo and Louth and Belfast and Dublin and everything that goes with it beamed into millions of homes, not just in the United States, but around the world. I think you just take a breath for a second and say, that's good. <laughs> that's got to be good. Whatever your politics, you don't have to be a Democrat or Republican. You don't forget, R Richard Nixon came to town in uh, Once Upon a Time. Um, Donald Trump came to town and we, we before he was president, albeit, and sure we had fiddles and violins waiting for him on the tarmac. Um, and this is, a, this is a good thing, I think. And it's going to be very exciting. And I'd just be, I'd just be less cynical about what this could do for us as a country. Uh, that's all I'll say. And if he does try to knock heads together in Belfast today, can't be a bad thing. And if the world sees beautiful views of County Mayo, beautiful county, can't be a bad thing. I mean, <laughs> how jaded do we have to be? 
And the text came rolling in. Jerry was on to say, just wait and see how people feel when no American president wants to visit Ireland. Did, did that, Jerry, that is exactly what I was uh, touching on. Um, as uh, w- w- there was one writing, it's Jared Howland writing today, says that given the uh, makeup of a culturally of America, it won't be long before there will be a president with no Irish whatsoever there. So rather than saying, I'm not really into it. So what's the point? Rather than saying that, because you will you will rue the day when, as you, as Jerry rightly points out, there'll be none, and you'll be sitting there going, "Well, it was better when they were here than when they weren't." In some ways. From the Ryan Tupperty show. Then later, Philip Boucher Hayes was talking to Pat Mary, former Garda detective inspector, about preparations for a presidential visit. Good morning to you, Pat. Um, I think So you would have a fairly good idea of what is involved in actually getting the preparations uh, and everything in order. What level of detail are we talking about? Oh, we're looking at every blade of grass <laughs> being looked at. Uh, you know, uh, I was my remit at the time, like I, I was in, in charge of the divisional search team, which I had 40 members fully trained uh, in search techniques and uh, a number of them trained in the use of uh, metal detectors in that. Now, we had to look at um, Joe Biden's visit. From the, we had to know where he was going, what roads he was going to travel. And all of this was done with, uh, you know, with cooperation from the, 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 uh, his security team. And uh, we had to search every piece of road that he would have traveled on. And when I mean that, I mean every manhole would have been checked. Uh, every ditch uh, and we got help from and looked for assistance from the army and they I must say have a, were very very helpful and have a, an engineering unit that uh, second to none so we were able to plan out uh, you know what roads he was going to go on and every ditch was walked uh, you know to, to, sh- to see that uh, there was no devices uh, planted or anything of that nature all the manholes were lifted uh, searched put back and marked uh, with paint to see that uh, that they weren't moved when we went a second and a third time to have a look at them. Um, it just so sorry, you checked each week. of those sewers and manholes up to three yes. times? Yes, yes, it had to be done because uh, if if it was a case that the manhole was moved or the you could see where, let's say, the paint didn't line up, uh-huh. you knew someone had interfered with it. So that would have to be lifted again and searched and the surrounding areas. Okay. And around. to what extent were you second-guessed or was your work checked by the Secret Service? Well, the Secret Service didn't uh, check us. We were quite happy in our own resolve when we, when we uh, secured a site for him. Uh, that uh, you know, we were quite happy that uh, there was there was nothing there. Now he did visit a, a graveyard in uh, out of Greenore. He did go to Finnegan's Pub. He did uh, go to Fitzpatrick's for something to eat. All of those areas were searched in advance. And when I mean searched, I mean you know every aspect of you take the pub of Fitz, uh, Finnegan's. Like you know, uh, we went in there and we checked absolutely everything. Every bottle of beer in there was looked at uh, the floors, the ceilings the vents, everything were looked at and we were able to say eventually then that we're happy there's nothing here that would cause any uh, you know, uh, issue uh, We had, not only that but the, 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 the buildings near and around uh, that pub were, were checked and I remember there was one old um, oh uh, 
roadside shed that had to be uh, looked at and no one really knew who owned it and we just had to uh, go and open it up and look in it and there was old furniture in it and it hadn't been opened I'd say in about 100 years and uh, we had to take everything out and look at it and put it all back again and say that yes we're happy this this uh, location mm. is secured I, so I, that's that's the type of detail you have to go into like you know and and then we have to hold that site until he comes until he goes and once he goes then the site is opened up again you know but to we what, have to, to be extent, 100% sure you know Pat to what extent uh, are things made easy by him being able to um, hop to and fro in the helicopter and if there was bad weather and we are expecting as you've probably seen gale force storms uh, if the helicopter can can't go up. Do things get significantly more complicated if he has to travel by road? Well, travelling by road, there's a lot more um, uh, security sign-off to do. Like when he came into Loud Division uh, the last time he came by road, so every bridge that he went under had to be secured and make uh, make sure that there was no people standing on there would drop a cement block down on the cavalcade or anything of that nature. All of that and what does secured we, we mean? Does secured mean one guard at either end of that bridge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But once we had it searched and secured, to say, yes, there's no issue here with any IED, okay. uh, improvised explosive device or anything of that nature. So, But that's for or every authority. single yeah. bridge and every single yeah. overpass between Belfast and, and Dundalk. Yeah, and every and and, and every uh, let's say under road uh, um, drains and uh, culverts, yeah, everything that they were all searched and thoroughly searched and uh, secured then, and that's what we had to do because we had to make sure that Joe Biden, once he came into our division, that where he went to visit, that uh, it, it was secure and that we were quite happy it was secure, like you know, and uh, like just he went to. Uh, uh, Carlingford uh, to a hall there there was going to be some Irish music and dancing and that type of stuff and we searched that it took us a full day to search that and we had to search the attics and uh, where he was actually going to walk into this hall there was actually a wooden floor but there was uh, iron grills around right around the, the outside of, of the floor so we had to lift all those grills up put cameras in underneath the floors to see that there was nothing there like that's the, the level of detail we, we went to like you know so uh, uh, really and uh, like the, and so that's why I'm saying that, uh, the guards with the help of the, the, the army uh, were very happy uh, that the, his security was like you know the, the the searches and he he was going to be secure in the the places he he visited like you know Indeed. and then you have the secret secret service then have their own like you know he's going now well he's going to such a place next and this is the route he's going to take the secret service can on their own volition just change the route and they'll go a different way. And that's they do that for their own. Um, of course, of I course. Think I think we saw that during the Obama yeah, visit. Yeah, Everybody was yeah, expecting yeah, him to turn up at yeah, Money Gull um, in yeah, the yeah. In, in the mo- the cavalcade, but he, yeah. he just dropped in by helicopter at the last yeah, minute. Yeah, it all changed. Yeah, yeah. Pat Murray there. Then later, Philip asked Met Aaron's Siobhan Ryan about the weather conditions for the visit. What does it look like? Joe Biden is going to be greeted with then. Well, it seems like he's followed the jet stream all the way across to Ireland today and he's going to land into, unfortunately, wind and rain conditions uh, today, tonight and tomorrow. 
Um, tomorrow really is a day I would highlight a very windy picture nationwide and obviously as you probably well know we've upgraded our warnings and extended them at the moment like basically today we've a yellow status wind warning that's really for temporary gusts in across the east southeast and the midlands and the northeast for a time this evening but really tonight and tomorrow that's when the winds really do pick up um, so tomorrow morning is going to be a very windy picture, very strong, very gusty northwest winds and accompanying that rain. Uh, that wind is going to be um, some spells of very heavy rain and potentially some thundery rain in that. So potential for some hail too. So conditions not looking particularly great, especially tomorrow for um, Joe Biden's visit, unfortunately. You are a meteorologist and not a helicopter mm-hmm. pilot, but do you imagine mm-hmm. that you would be taking off or landing helicopters in the kind of weather you're forecasting? It does look a little bit tricky, truth be told. Um, tomorrow really is a dodgy day. It's a yellow status winter warning that we have in effect for, I think it's loud that he's arriving into tomorrow. Um, and actually that's going to be at the higher end of the yellow at the moment and they're possibly touching into the orange. So it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that that yellow could be upgraded to an orange. If it is upgraded, it will be the first named storm of the season. So we will be keeping a close watch on that. And as I said, if we do need to update that warning, it will be done so this afternoon or early this evening. OK, so he will so, at least yeah. have some kind of advance warning of it. But Yeah, uh, hopefully, yeah. Going to have yeah, to... we do plan to... Okay, but he's going to have to flatten the hair down. That's for certain, and yeah. probably stay in the uh, stay on the ground, stay in the mm-hmm. uh, cavalcade, and out of the skies. Siobhan Ryan with Philip Boucher Hayes in the morning, and on Morning Ireland, phone-free gigs. Ashling Maloney was at a show where you have to lock your phone in a case before the performer takes to the stage. Have you ever been to a gig or a show where the people around you seem incapable of putting down their phones? Have you been one of those people? Well, phone-free spaces are becoming more common with phone-locking technology appearing in entertainment venues as well as in schools. Our reporter Ashling Maloney went along to a phone-free gig to see what it was all about. Hello, guys. People are streaming in the doors of Dublin's Three Arena for a comedy gig with British comedian Mickey Flanagan. But this is a phone-free gig. Hi there, can I give you a phone please? As the audience enter the venue, their phone is inserted into a pouch and locked away. They get to keep the pouch with them, but their phone is not released until they leave some hours later. This will be unlocked at the end of the show, okay? Thank you. You just have that urge to look at it, but probably it was good to be fair. But we can't even tag where we're at, so no one knows we're here. Oh, it's a bit weird, because I suppose we have have it the whole time, you know. So now it's here in my pocket, but you can't choose it. People aren't living in the moment anymore. They're on their phones. Does that bother you when you go to gigs and people yes. are recording? Because yes. you're you're looking at their phone watching yeah. the concert. It's so annoying. Yeah. Actually, my boyfriend said to me, OK, you actually have to stand and talk to me now for an hour and a half. And I was like, oh, great. So you felt like we've been in there half hour. You, you spent the whole half hour trying to get your phone out the, the case that you can't get out. Please welcome to the stage, Mickey. The promoter for the gig, Noel McHale from MCD Promotions, says he is seeing a growing interest in phone-free gigs as phones further invade our personal space. The funniest thing to watch over the years is what you'd call theatre etiquette, that people sometimes act like they're sitting at home watching the TV instead of a live show. So they, they think there's nothing wrong with take out your phone, you know, even answer your phone during a comedy show and not realising that not only are they affecting the performer, 
but they are annoying to people all around them as well. But it, it makes makes a really good atmosphere when there is no phones in the room. Having a phone-free gig is at the request of the artist and the artist must foot the bill. I think it will keep growing. But again, it, it depends on the act because there is a cost to it. Like it's... Uh, works out three to four euros a head for the artist. The acts will say, yeah, this is what we want. Promoters and venues won't get a choice in it, really, if the act says, if you want me to do the show, it has to be phone-free, so you have to go with that. It's just a new system coming in that people will get used to. Comedian Chris Rock and musician Bob Dylan have both had phone-free gigs here, and since then, Tommy Dearnan is the first Irish act to have phone-free gigs on his recent Irish tour. The company that created these phone-locking pouches is called Yonder. They are used in entertainment spaces, but also schools and courtrooms. Here is Yonder CEO Graham Dugoni. Name drop. Tell us some big acts that have used Yonder. Oh, there's, there's a lot. I think Dave Chappelle, Jack White, Bob Dylan, Joe Rogan, Chris Rock, Bruno Mars, Madonna, Adele. Um, it's, a, it's a long, long list. Do you think your business is benefiting from the fact that some artists, particularly comedians, might be more worried about cancel culture? Oh, it's definitely an aspect. I mean, when I mentioned earlier freedom of expression, I think for comedians in particular, it's, it's incredibly important that they're their material and what they do is taken fully in context. Back in the three arena, Mickey Flanagan has finished up and the audience have their phones unlocked. I thought it was a great idea, actually, because you didn't have to, I don't know, you didn't need your phone, which was brilliant. And most places we always have phones. So it meant that everyone was actually chatting and talking and listening and, and you didn't even think about it. It was brilliant. You're actually just sitting there and you're just actually quite relaxed. It's just the best thing about it is when you look forward towards the stage, you don't see all these bright big screens reflecting back on you and people are actually enjoying the entertainment that's on. It's just like it was before phones, yeah. It was great. No, honestly, I have a babysitter at home. Don't like the idea of not being able to be contacted. Understand where they're coming from, just don't think it's the solution. I mean, it was nice that people weren't on their phones, but I don't think that's the answer. At the start, it was a bit daunting because it was we thought it was just like a phone cover. But when we came out, we're nearly like adrenaline junkies trying to turn on our phones. It's like everyone's like, turn on the phone, turn on the phone. But, you know, it's nice just to switch off for the for the hour or two without technology. Ashling Maloney reporting for Morning Ireland. Then later, more about antisocial issues at concerts and shows on the Ryan Tuberty show. You know, the bodyguard, the, 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 the famous um, Whitney Houston, uh, where she covers Dolly Parton's song, I Will Always Love You. So the bodyguard, which I think did a stint here a few times in Borgash, uh, is doing the rounds in the UK. But for some reason, what's happening since the pandemic is that people are insisting on singing along with the song to the point that last week there was there were um, there were scuffles and physical confrontation because somebody was trying to hit the big notes and you can't hit the, the only one person can hit the big notes. That person's on stage being paid to hit the big notes, doing it brilliantly. Whereas if you're in the crowd. So the the debate now is, if you go to a gig, sing away. It's so loud, it doesn't matter. We're not going to hear you. It's perfect. It's fine. I went to Elton John since we last met, and it was amazing. I'm dill dandling. He was dill dandling for the whole show. He, he played all the hits, like really, really good. I got great seats, and I was in great company, and we laughed and sang our way through it, and it was just terrific. Really good, actually. And um, the point I'm making is that if I went to see an Elton John show in, say, the Gaiety or the Abbey Theatre and somebody was singing on stage, would I sing along? No. 
because it's a, it's a different vibe. So that's what they're saying. They're saying stop shouting and roaring during the songs. No, it's not fair. They're saying it's it's a different it's a different thing. On the Ryan Tuberty Show. Now, compulsory Irish as a subject in school. That's what dominated the live line and Katie Hannon was in for Joe in the afternoon. And I want to go to that issue now that uh, is a hoary old chestnut, we could say. Uh, should Irish be kept as a compulsory subject in, uh, in secondary school? Uh, I want to bring in Paul. Paul, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon to you, Katie. Do you think Irish should be kept as a compulsory subject? Well, I think the basic of it is that it's a cultural reason for uh, instructing in in Irish and in the Irish language. And I think that uh, as a person who comes from a home where, you know, both my parents spoke English, my grandparents spoke English, my great-grandparents spoke English. And in fact, I don't know how far back I have to go before somebody uh, in my family spoke Irish and we're just a normal Irish family, i.e., you know, two, three generations back. We're all small farmers, small tenant farmers. And uh, I just can't see that, you know, there there was an Irish medium in which we, we communicated in at any stage in my ancestry. So I find it a little bit of a stretch to be told uh, that uh, Irish is my culture because culture is just what is the norm. And uh, Irish speaking has never been the norm in my family or my friends' families or anybody in my town, which is Dublin. Uh, I just cannot see that it's fair that my children are, have no choice but to learn a language that they don't relate to. And it's such a huge ask, I think. Okay. Because, Sorry, Paul, just yeah, to explain to people, sure. I suppose, the reason we're talking about this today is because, as I say, there's been this ongoing debate going back for for a long time now that yeah. we, you know this should that Irish should become optional for the leaving cert in particular but Norma Foley the education minister Norma Foley has uh, said today she's quoted in the Sun newspaper that um, the language has particular social historical and educational importance and is part of the unique cultural heritage of the Irish people and that's the line that you take you take a bit of exception to well I, I... I sure do. Yeah, I think that, you see, what is culture? You know, culture is what the norm is, what, what is the norm. And like in my family and in the, everybody I know, Irish speaking isn't the norm. And so it can't be considered uh, our culture. Like there, there is a large, large, obviously, majority of people in this country who speak English as their first language and they communicate every day in the English medium. So, I mean, it, I, I think it's a big... Uh, asked for uh, them to have no choice in it. I think the the parents ought to have some input into the cultural uh, instruction for their children. And, and I, I, I really don't think it's up to Norma to, to, to say this is your culture, where it's patently not. Did you do Irish yourself in school? You had to, I suppose. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, sure, I did, yeah. Did I, you like I it? went from... Uh, to be honest, not particularly, no. It, it didn't resonate with me. It didn't mean anything to me, to be quite honest with you. see, because I do think that maybe it, it depends a lot from maybe what part of the country you're from in terms of where Irish is placed and the curriculum and the, the emphasis that's put on it. Um, certainly down down where, where uh, my end of the world, where I came out of in Kerry, uh, Irish would have been seen as a very integral part, I think, of a lot of people's uh, education 
Uh, certainly, I suppose, as, as, as you go back west and, and you, you touch off the Grailtucked areas. But I wonder, is are people on the eastern coast uh, in particular less connected to the language? I think they probably are, but um, I wouldn't wish to see the, the language go down in any way. The language is kept alive by people who are interested in it and who wish to speak it. And fair play, I, I see, you know, they get great pleasure out of it and they, they relate to it. It is part of their culture. And I'd like that to continue. Um, what really I'm, I'm proposing is that people who uh, are from probably less connected areas, over the East Coast, South Coast, wherever, uh, that they, they have a choice when it comes to their children's education because it's a big ask to ask a child to learn Irish or some, uh, language that they, they don't necessarily relate to from age four up to age 18. And then when they do their leaving cert paper in Irish, that's the last time they ever use Irish. So I think there's, there's a little contradiction there. And I think that, that we should focus um, the resources that teach the people who are interested in Irish, we focus those resources on that group of people. And for um, students who don't wish to learn Irish, that they have, you know, that, that they really the resources aren't wasted on them. Paul there, then Sean called Katie. Well, look, I think Paul is presenting his case very reasonably and he's making the case, I suppose, for areas in which the Irish language traditionally hasn't been strong and, and it's true to say in many areas like, like Dublin where Paul is and in Kilkenny, where I'm standing at the moment, uh, there hasn't been a tradition of the language being spoken. I'm in a, in a Norman English city, uh, which, you know, where the Irish language has been out of use for over 800 years. But that said, we have seen a huge growth um, in this city, and I'm quite sure around Paul's area, um, in people wishing to study in Gales, Gullina. Um, and that has been, you know, over 50,000 children in primary schools at the moment. Um, and, you know, there has been a colossal growth since the 1980s. I think a lot of the attitudes from former generations have moved on, thankfully. And I think there is a much more positive attitude. And Paul Meskell is, is only one uh, part of, the, of, of, that, of that movement. There are many others, like Evandy Quillen and your own colleague in RTE, um, and many people who have come to the fore who have grown up now speaking the language without the baggage that we grew up with in the 60s and 70s and 80s when, you know, Irish was distinctly uncool, unsophisticated and and was considered to a large extent to be the language of of the poverty-stricken Western coast. Thankfully, that has changed hugely. And I think for the first time, we have a generation of children were not as resistant to the, to the language as their parents and their grandparents were. And I think as a state, we have consistently, in the 100 years of our independence, decided that the Irish language should be, um, should be maintained as a core subject in the school curriculum at primary and post-primary level. And I think we should continue with that. But isn't there... We certainly, sorry, Sean, yeah. but there is a difference though maintaining as a core subject like, say, maths and history or whatever. Mm. Although, as I say that, I realise history is a matter of, uh, of controversy there. But uh, core subject and compulsory subject are two very different things. Well, you know, I, I certainly believe it should be both. I think it should be core and it should be compulsory. It should be, um, you know, it's a core part of our collective national identity and not you know it's very, sorry Sean but it's not pause but Paul would claim that but the reality is that you know to understand our culture fully in Ireland you know the vast majority of our historical culture is written in Irish 
um, you know, or Fíniacht or Rúniacht, Rúriacht, all of the, the stories of, of our ancestors, predominantly up to the last 200, 300 years, were written through Irish. To have a full understanding, I think we need to have a working. And we need to be, I, I'm not arguing, and most people in the Irish language movement now are not arguing, for a monolingual uh, country in which the Irish language is revi- revived as being the main cultural language of the country. What we're arguing for is a bilingual society. And look, if you look, Katie, where we've come since the time I was at school, we now have an Irish language television station, which is phenomenal. We now have an Irish language radio station, which is phenomenal. Those are things which people had to fight very hard for in the tooth of, of ferocious opposition. You know, Uchtaran Nehirn deserves a huge amount of credit uh, for what happened with T.G. Carr, but that came off the foot of community campaigns for those. You know, when Paul and I were going to school, we didn't have those services. We didn't have a cultural context in which the language was in daily use. Now people sit down to watch Leinster Rugby but they or do. to watch they the watch, Championship they, at the weekend yeah, on but, TG Carr. But Sean, they do. They do when it's a big sporting event that's only shown on TG Carr. They do maybe for major documentaries that TG Carr have, have done very, very well in commissioning. Uh, but in terms of people sitting down and watching programming through Irish, I wonder really, is that something that people turn on TG Carr for? Unless you're actually from a Gaeltacht area and you, you were an Irish speaker yourself. Well, again, you know, let's look at Colleen Kuhn. You know, let's look at, at Frank Huggis Raw show over the last 12 months. M- multi-million euro box office hits now. And without TG Carr having been created back in 1996, there's no way in God that we would have an Irish language film sector like we have now selling films all over the world. You know, there is a different atmosphere out there now. And I suppose the other thing as a school principal I saw very clearly, Katie, and I'm going to quote a student with the permission of her parents who came to our school to a Gaelic school when she was in fourth class. And when I asked her uh, why she wanted to come and learn, come to a Gaelic school from an English language school, her, her answer was very clear. She said, it's just another language. She came from a, from a school background with a parent from Lithuania, one parent from Lithuania, the other parent Irish, and she was coming to our school to learn her fifth language. And the same has happened. We had four students came to our school from the Ukraine over the last 12 months. And they were, again, of the very same attitude. We, are, we forget, and Paul and others, I think, forget, uh, that we are very unusual in that as part of the Anglo world, we are almost unique in the world in being monolingual for the vast majority of us. The people who speak only one language in this world are a minority of about 30%. Over 70% of the world's population speak two, three and four languages. That's Sean on the live line with Katie Hannon. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, the lasting effects of a prison sentence. Damien Quinn was talking about turning your life around and helping others in the same position. Let us begin with uh, the fact that you grew up in the UK, for starters, Mm. and you came back to Ireland uh, very early as well, though, didn't you? Yeah, so like we're originally Irish. We we grew up in Abinock. We were born in Abinock, Moy, and then we moved to England when I was very young. Yeah. Uh, So we were Irish growing up in the UK and then we moved back to Ireland around 14. Uh, So it was kind of a situation where I never really felt like I fitted in anywhere. Very, very hard for a young person 
to be neither English or Irish or Irish or English. It's, I often talk to people like that who come in and they could be famous or not particularly well known, but it must be an identity crisis for you. Well, it certainly was. Like, I suppose growing up as a young person in England, as an Irish, like defending myself of being Irish and then coming back here and then having to defend myself of being English, it was uh, it was quite the challenge, you know. So uh, it kind of led me down a... A different road. A different road, yeah. You, you were a bright kid. I mean, mm. you were good at school. You were yeah. getting all the, hitting all the right marks. Isn't that right? I mean, tell yeah. us a bit about that. Yeah, so in the UK, like, I would have been straight-A student, you know, shy, quite geeky, you know. And, but then when I came here, then um, I, in Ireland, I believe Ireland has a higher level of education. And when we moved over at that time, it was really, really hard to kind of get going again. And it kind of took me aback because I was so used to getting good grades in school. And I really, really struggled in the education system back here because it was a step up that I wasn't prepared for. And between that, uh, having trouble with where you belonged, um, stuff started going wrong. I mean, when, hmm. again, young when when you went into the, the shadows, what what happened? Yeah, well, so like with the reason we moved back, the family unit broke down. Okay. Um, uh, we found ourselves in a situation then where I would have had to take responsibility for a household at the age of 14 and a younger brother as well. Um, and like I, I was actually got a full time job at the time, which was quite unusual. At fourteen. At fourteen, yeah. And what were you doing? I was working in, in a, a place called Homely Bedding. Yeah. Uh, we were manufacturing beds and stuff like that. And uh, my brother was in an alternative to mainstream education as well, so I was able to keep the show on the road, you know. But look, with all of that stuff going on, we got sucked into a life of uh, drugs and that type of stuff. But how, how do you get sucked into a life like? Uh, <laughs> I was looking for an escape anyways, you know, and yeah. drugs seemed to be uh, an escape. Like, I tried them and uh, uh, loved them. They did know. a job for you. What were you, what were the sort of drugs were we talking about? Well, in the, in the early days, like, hash and ecstasy and all that type of stuff, and then, like, everything else afterwards, you know, so... On it went. On it went, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's very young, 14. Yeah. And the pressures of looking after the house. And, in fact, there's a list of pressures you were under, let's face it. Um, wh- what happened to school? School, I obviously took a backward step, you know, like I was out of school before the junior cert, like um, I just wasn't getting on in school, like, you know, and like really now later in life, I know not all learning happens in classrooms, you know, so uh, yeah, yeah, um, so yeah, school kind of finished. I was in full time work. I was involved in like a little bit of a network uh, using drugs and uh, and moving drugs and uh, Stuck with that for about eight or nine years up until um, I got caught. I got caught with a, a kilo of cannabis and I ended up uh, going to prison for it. What is, what is that like when you're caught? I mm. mean, when the guards, what, do they knock on your door? Do you get a hand down the, on your shoulder? How were you caught? Well, the guards were always kind of aware I was up to no good and they were after me for a while. And it was a shock. Look, it was a shock. I didn't see anything wrong with what I was doing. Everybody that I hung around with was doing the same type of thing. It was quite normal in the Estates of Ireland to be involved in that type of a lifestyle, you know. And drug dealing. Drug dealing, drug taking, yeah. all that kind of stuff, yeah. So um, it was quite a shock. When, when I got caught, I realised the gravity of what I was involved with. Yeah. You know, I lost all my friends. I lost my house. I lost my partner. I, I People around the town that liked me as a young fella didn't like me anymore. Do you know, I had to deal with all of that stuff. How it, old were you when you were caught? 
uh, I was about 23, 24 uh, when I got caught. And um, I was actually, I had gone back to uh, education at that age uh, because work had dried up, you know, um, say manufacturing work had dried up. I, a lot of uh, skilled people came into the country around 2002, okay. bags of qualifications, and I couldn't compete with them in the workplace. So I had to go back and get my junior cert at that age. And I was doing this on the side as well. So you were doing a, a very late junior cert. So th- this mm. is what a struggle this is for you, because one part of your brain says, get more education, get out of this drugs business and sort out my life. And then the other part was saying, well, I can't afford to. Can't afford to. Yeah. Don't want to. Yeah. Or did you want to? I wasn't oh, sure. Well, I did want to. There was like I, I'd look around to people in my age, you know, that would have been settled yeah. down, family, nice things at the weekend, you know, living a nice, normal life. I did want that. Yeah. But um, like at the same time, um, all I knew was that life. Do you know what I mean? As a as a as a way to kind of protect myself from poverty. Okay. Like I wasn't making millions by any stretch yeah, of the yeah. imagination, but I had enough to get by. Like, and I and and I had enough to cover my uh, addiction as well. And Ryan asked Damien if he saw prison as a horror or an opportunity. I, I actually pleaded to go. I wanted to go because I knew there was access to opportunity in prison. There's access to education units, there's access to work programs, there's access to addiction counselling, all that stuff. I knew it was there to be used. So, so it's I, like a rehab clinic for you in a strange way. Well, prison should be uh, correctional. And I actually, I, I naively believe that would be the case because... When I went in, um, I, I, I grabbed every opportunity I could. Like what I got, did you do? I got my equivalent of the, the leaving cert, which was a business administration course, the FETAC Level 5. I'd done Open University, um, business, an introduction to business studies. I'd done uh, advanced ECDL, which is ICDL now, journalism, small bit of that, um, Microsoft Word Level 6 and all that kind of stuff. So there's loads of good courses, like, you know, and uh, grabbed everything with both hands because I naively believe that when the sentence was over, my punishment was over. But actually, that is when the punishment, when I got out, that is when the real punishment started, trying to get going again in the community. Now, here lies the rub, because you think, did the crime, which you've admitted to, mm-hmm. serve the time, which you have, have uh, outlined? Yeah. You described it as a correctional institution, which is what we hear a lot. Did you believe you had been corrected? Yeah. To use the expression. Yeah, I, I believe that I took every opportunity to reflect on my behaviour, to make positive plans for the future, right. to rebuild my life, to rebuild my connections, all that type of stuff. But all of that stuff um, faded quite quickly after getting released because nobody was willing to give me a chance. I couldn't get a house, couldn't get into college, couldn't get a job. Couldn't well, go, back, go, go back to the day you leave. Yeah. What, what do they give you to say... There you go. You just said you were kind of homeless and you lost a lot of contact with any family or friends that you yeah. had. So they closed the gate behind you, the door behind you. So you were now free to... Do they give you anything or did you... Yeah, so like there was a plan. There was a plan in place. I was meant to go to Harrison House, which is a, a rehab centre yeah. outside the prison. But funding was withdrew literally just before I was leaving. So it closed. It's open again now. But So my re-entry plan changed. And what they gave me was a bus pass and a and b for one night and go and start again. For one night B&B? Well, I was entering into homelessness. So what happened was I got the map of Ireland. I threw a felted pen at it. it Did hit, you? It hit half loan. So I said, I'll go there. Because I could have gone anywhere, you see. Just how whimsical your your life was at that point. Pretty much, yeah. You went to Athlone. Did you have a plan? 
I had a plan. I had a plan to stay away from where I was from and get my life together, prove to everybody that mattered, that I had changed and that I wanted to play a meaningful part in their lives. That and was in my society plan. and community and everything. So you're armed with quite a few uh, educational mm. diplomas and you go to Athlone and what, you start knocking on doors for jobs or yeah. applying for jobs, I should say. Yeah, well, well, what happened was we actually started our own little business. It was a, a magazine. It was uh, Galway 365. Come and on, we, were, yeah. we were going to put it on the trains and people would be able to read about Galway before they get there. Good. It was with another prisoner. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't work out. And uh, I was out there looking for work then. So that was going on. I remember I had really smart clothes for going looking for work. I walked the heels off them looking for work. I'd get home then. I'd have spent all my dough all day looking for work all week, like keeping the keeping food in the cupboard wasn't happening. Do you know I was? Why were you, Why do you think, uh, Damien, that the the work was? Because of my convictions, 100% because of my convictions. Every time. Yeah, yeah. So you I, get to that question. Yeah, I had a, a, an interview in the college again, same thing. Uh, tell us a bit about your background, why you're in prison. And that was it. Like, I didn't get the college placement. I didn't get the jobs. I didn't get the volunteerism. Couldn't get on the council list because I had convictions as well. So, like, you know, they expect you to get your, your, your act together. But when you, every time you try, you're told no. And... It's, it's, it's soul destroying. So what happened then with all that stuff and the, the, the drive and ambition to change, um, I regressed really, really quickly. And I ended up worse off than before I went in because I was right back to where I started. And you were probably depressed. Oh, yeah, depressed just, and using again and all that kind oh, of stuff. Oh, you got to using drugs again. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was caught back, sucked back into the life because I didn't see any other option. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything right. And after a very difficult time, Damien's family took him back to Tume. It was the beginning of uh, starting again because I was around people that I had let down previously and yeah. I didn't want to put them through that again. Do you know what I mean? I really did take responsibility for that. Um, obviously, all the stuff that I was caught up in <laughs> was never resolved, but it was left that way, do you know? Um, the um, When I got home then, um, I met my partner, Jodie, as I was coming round to myself, and she was a, an additional positive influence in my life. You know, she kind of saw something in me and she made me want to uh, be a better person as well, you know. So I um, met her, um, being the stay-at-home person, cleaning the house, all that stuff, while she was going off to college. And uh, then I seen an advert for a course with Equal Ireland uh, in business and community development. Mm. I had given up looking for work because I was well used to being told no at this stage. So, but I seen that as an avenue to keep me interested. And yeah, yeah. So I applied to that because of the business studies. But then I heard about this idea of empowering uh, marginalised people, empowering marginalised communities, and I got really interested in that because I was one of them people. It, I love your story on the basis that from your eight, nine, ten-year-old self, lower key maybe a little introverted, but bright, bright, bright. Um, you always, and throughout your story, despite the, the dark episodes, there was always education floating around oh, your brain, yeah. always a desire, FITAC course here, FITAC course there. Yeah. Uh, maybe write a magazine, you know, always keen to better yourself. You just needed the right circumstances to, the right forces around you. And that's what happened. Yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. And you did the course and 
then you, you go even further with with, with Spare Nua, mm. which is a whole a whole other story. Maybe begin at the beginning of that phenomenon for yeah, us. Yeah, so uh, I, I continued studying with Equal Ireland. I went through level six, seven and eight. And then uh, I got to my uh, master's degree. Or, sorry, uh, um, level eight degree. Mm-hmm. I was a manager in a distribution company at this stage. I said, you know what, I'm going to try and get a job in community development. This is eight, nine, ten years later. Same old story. Uh, what happened there? Do you know what I mean? We can't take you on, kind of thing. So I was getting very disillusioned with mm-hmm. it all. I went to one last open day and I heard a story about Siobhan Cafferty, who is a social enterprise development officer with the Irish Prison Service and Probation. Yeah. And she wrote a paper called a New Way Forward, which is about integrating violent ex-offenders back into the workforce. So when I heard that, I said, you know what, I need to stick with the education and I need to meet her. She planted a seed at that time around certificates of employability in my head and it made perfect sense. But um, it's a more universal problem. It's going for houses, it's going for volunteering, it's going for any any of that type of stuff. So I changed it to certificates of commitment to change that could be used more universally. So it was a college thesis for my master's and then... I met with guards, governors, uh, probationers, um, uh, senators, and they all took part in interviews and they could all see merit in what I was saying. So will you tell me what you were saying? What was your proposal? My my proposal was that we need to be capturing all of the steps out of a life of crime people take and attaching a value to that. We need to be kind of capturing it and, and displaying that to employers as well as the historical stuff. So yes, there is this, but there's also all of this positive stuff. Yeah. This person has taken necessary steps to change their lives to change their outlooks to give back and that that needs to be captured so they, as well they, they did see the error of their ways they did see what they did was wrong they did concede that maybe their life choices was 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 rooted in uh, difficult family circumstances whatever but it was of a time of and a time, therefore yeah. Yeah. they put all the work in to educate themselves out of that corner to better themselves out of that corner mm. to to read themselves out of the corner, it might be, and then say, "Now you've got to give me a, a chance here." Yeah. You know, there's there there is a, a hope. Yes. And with that charter, if, or whatever you call it, hmm. certificate or something. Yeah. So as peer mentors, like what we do is we build portfolios of evidence of commitment to change. Yeah. And we hand that over then for the criminal justice sector to assess, and if they're satisfied, cer- certain benchmarks are met. They just sign off on it uh, right up to date that they can confirm that there appears to be evidence of change here and it has a value and it should be communicated to anybody that can provide an opportunity to. Um, what do you say to somebody listening this morning who is a victim of crime, not your, your whatever you did with drugs, mm. but just a victim of crime and has very little sympathy for prisoners mm. uh, or even former prisoners? They, they're, they're, they're very much of the belief that, that uh, there's, there's very little reform possibility here. Uh, they'll be recidivist and they'll do it again. How do you appeal to the better angels of those people? Yeah, well, I suppose, look, nobody ever in this line of work minimises the impact of crime on victims, you know. Uh, I suppose a lot of people that are involved in, in offending behaviour are too uh, victims of their own circumstances as well, you know. Uh, and, like, uh, lots of nice things are happening with regards to restorative justice where the victim takes part in the punishment of the individual. And that gives power back to the victim, you know. Everybody has things in their life that they're not very proud of, you know, and that they'd love to take back. And I know many, I met many people in prison that were of that desire to give back, wanted to change, wanted to make amends. And that's what we need to be uh, capturing and, 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 and using to the benefit of the wider community. You know, there's many people that just want to get involved, help out, 
want to show that they've really, really learned from their errors of their ways. And by me setting up Spirit and that's my own way of making amends for my own behaviour, helping other people to kind of disentangle themselves from the consequences of their own life and, and, and play a part, a positive part in somebody else's. Damien Quinn on The Ryan Tuberty Show. And in the afternoon, Catherine Thomas was in for Ray and she was talking about the growing area of humanist weddings with Ruth Scott. Now, the weather might tell a different story, but summer is on the way. And uh, we're heading towards the big wedding season in Ireland with pent up demand after lockdown still being seen. So today we are going to take a peek into the world of humanist weddings, which are growing in popularity, as everybody knows. And I'm joined now by humanist celebrant. <laughs> I know, I can't believe it Ruth either. Scott. <laughs> It's like, I'm delighted for you. And and I know from uh, reading you talking about this, like this is uh, something that you are so passionate about. Absolutely. You love it. it. And what's not to love? Like you get to spend your weekends. Yeah. And can can I tell you, midweeks, midweeks, Sundays, Mondays, last year was an eye opener. For everybody. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. there was so many people trying to catch up on their weddings that there was calls coming in saying, can you do a Tuesday? Yeah. Can you do a Thursday morning? And I, yeah. Like but to get to spend like the, the happiest yeah. day of somebody's life and yeah. to be a part of that and like to get out of bed and get dressed for that, like that's pretty oh, special, isn't it? Listen, I haven't worn a suit as much as I have <laughs> in my life. I've worn the suit so many times in the last year and a half. It is amazing. And what I really love is like you get to make the couple the entire focus of the ceremony Mm. because a humanist wedding ceremony is secular. So it's non-religious. And so instead of, let's say, religious prayers and things like that, Mm. it's readings that the couple choose. So it could be something like there's a great one that people often throw in called What I What I Know About Love by Dolly Alderton from one of her novels. It could be something from um, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Somebody had a reading one time which was a couple of lines of text from One Tree Hill, the show. Now it sounds ridiculous and trite but they picked a lovely piece and as I always say isn't that brilliant that the couple get to pick what they include to kind of reflect them. So yeah, I'm always really... what they identify with. Yeah and then their friends would be having a giggle going oh my God I can't believe they had you know One Tree included in the, in the wedding ceremony. So just so I'm sure, so there, we have three types of wedding in Ireland, right? Yeah. So the one that I guess most people are probably most familiar with is a church wedding. Yep. So whatever faith you are, church wedding for that. Then there's what we might know of as... Civil ceremony. The, the civil ceremony. So that's the HSE and that could be either going into the HSE to do your wedding with them or sometimes they come out to particular um, environments where they're able to do and they have a list of criteria that mm-hmm. they need to follow to do that and then you have us the humanists we are the only completely secular so non-religious I honestly had to learn the word secular when I became a humanist celebrant it means non-religious not anti-religious but non-religious um, ceremonies and we are able to legally marry couples and as I always say can I just give you a, this is the line I say I'm a, a humanist a celebrant accredited by the Humanist Association of Ireland and a registered solemnizer, which as I always say in the ceremonies is a fancy way of saying I can legally marry the couple here today. Okay, so there's plenty of people because I've been at weddings where somebody will stand up for a mate yes. and do the service yes. but that's not legally binding if you no. like so they would have had to have their registration with the... Exactly, they might okay. have gone to the HSE beforehand or afterwards. Whereas a solemnizer, A solemnizer. there's a list of HSE registered solemnizers, and we are all the people who get to say the line by the power vested in me by the Irish government I now pronounce you... Oh! 
legally yes. married or husband and wife or whatever it by is. By the power invested in me. Do you oh, love it? That's my favourite line. <laughs> like, I feel like He-Man and She-Ra all together at the one time. So, sorry. First of all, how how do you become a solemniser? What does it involve? Yeah. Like, what sort, of, what sort of course do you have to do? So, because it's with the humanists and they're the, the only secular weddings in Ireland... You well, I became a member and I became a very active member. So kind of volunteering here and there, and we all do it. We're a small group, so when we gather together, there's always someone collecting tickets on the door, or, you know, making a list of these kind of things. And then with time, um, I heard that they were looking for uh, applications for celebrants. So we're going to train people, so you have to submit like like a real job, Catherine. You mm. submit your application, you do an interview, which was done. Uh, during COVID my one happened to be and then we did the training and then you have to pass the training and then there's a sort of a probationary period for me uh, you know me and there was 10 of us did it last year uh, or the year before and you know you kind of just get checked to make sure that yeah they're ticking all the boxes they're legally marrying everyone great and then that's it now it's in big demand in a sense lots of people since I started doing it have said I'd love to be a wedding celebrant and it's a it's a hard job to be able to get, mm-hmm. but for me it's worthwhile. So was Ruth from a religious background herself? I grew up in the most Catholic of houses. Okay. There was rosaries. We used to be the Scott family choir on a Saturday night at Mass wow. and then again on Sunday. Like I did readings. I would have been an altar girl if I thought I'd get away with it. And when I was a teenager then, I just kind of thought, oh, I... You know, I had my own sort of epiphany. And was that a a moment or did that happen for you over time? I think it happened over time. The irony being that um, it happened in my time in a convent education (laughs) system. So my seven older siblings, you know, they're all Catholic and and practicing in different stages. And I just thought, God, that's not me. And it was only years later I said to one of my sisters, "Um, I'm an atheist, no more church things for me. And she said, what do we do with you when you're dead? And I thought, oh, so I'd never thought about what happens. And then I started thinking about the rituals of life. Like, you know, you got married a couple of years ago. You possibly had a christening or a baptism for your baby. Mm. There's these gatherings and I'm from a big family and we always got together for the baptisms and the confirmations and mm. the weddings. And mm. it was all around religious ceremonies. And I thought to myself, what's going to happen if I take myself away from all that? Mm. Now, it doesn't mean I don't go to them. Of but I thought I need to rethink. And I realised that the Because it is important to mark those oh, moments, whether... It's so, a religious ceremony or not. So important. Choose. Like the importance of a baby naming. Mm. Yes, it's fun and it's light. But at the same time, this is a parent's, a new parent's way of saying, we want our child to be brought up in this particular way. Mm. If we are not, you know, religious people, we want to be able to raise our child in a way that people know and acknowledge. Same way, like when kids are making their first communion, we're trying to arrange, some schools are great for this, arranging something whereby the young kids can have a day themselves for the the non-religious and then the next day is for the community. So everyone gets to enjoy it. And then same with weddings and funerals. Ruth Scott with Catherine Thomas in the afternoon. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.